you would take your Bible, turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue to study this wonderful section. It's no secret, of course, that pride is a sin that plagues the human race. You know that pride is no respecter of persons. It affects us all, regardless of age or gender, ethnicity, social status. It is truly pervasive among human beings. And because of that, our pride is dangerous because it often blinds us to other sins. And it causes us to downplay small warning signs that point to a much bigger problem. This is why, for instance, an unbeliever will likely be willing to admit that they have told a lie at some point in the past, but will be very hesitant to admit to being a liar. They may admit to having stole something small in their past, but will be hesitant to admit that they are perhaps a thief. Some will admit to getting drunk regularly, but will take offense at the insinuation that they are an alcoholic. We don't mind admitting things that we deem to be small, but when we are confronted with the fact that those small infractions add up to one big reality, we get defensive. And it's because even unbelievers have a God-given conscience, and they do all that they can to squelch it, to suppress it. So it's a lot easier to pacify a guilty conscience when we... Just say, well, you know, I'm basically a good person. On the whole, I do some good things. And yes, occasionally I I have done some, some wrong things. But on the whole, I'm a pretty good person. And if there is a God, then perhaps if I have to stand before him, I'll be able to show him the long list of great things I have done, and, and he'll compare that with the, the small list of bad things I've done, and of course he'll, he'll forgive, he'll let me in. It's easy to pacify our conscience when we think that way, but if we think of ourselves not only as those who have committed some sins, but as sinners who are sinners through and through, that's much more difficult for us to get our minds around. And that really gets to the heart of the matter. The real trouble that people have with admitting their true condition before God and their own depravity is the fact that to admit that would also be to insinuate that they are guilty before a holy God and in need of his forgiveness. And so it is that our pride deceives us into thinking that we are right with God when our lives are telling a different story. And the author of Hebrews this morning is going to show us just how deadly that mistake was, specifically for the wilderness generation that was led out of Egypt by Moses. They saw themselves as a group of people who had great faith in Yahweh, and yet their lives demonstrated the opposite. And the consequences in their case were truly devastating, and they serve this morning as a warning for us to make sure that we don't miss it. The theme of Hebrews, you remember, is the superiority of Christ. We're looking at chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13, as the author of Hebrews lays out a warning for us based on the fact that he just taught that Christ is superior to Moses. Let's read our text together. We're going to read the entire section, chapter 3, verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 19. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. This is our text starting here for this morning, verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? 
Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. As I said before, we're looking at this warning from the author here to beware of a hard heart of unbelief. And we've seen four tactics so far to keep ourselves from this hardness of heart. Tactic number one, remember the past, verses 7 through 11, where he introduces us to his text in Psalm 95. And the rest of this passage is is the author expounding upon, expositing, and applying Psalm 95. But after calling us to look backwards in tactic number 2 in verse 12, he says, examine your heart. You make sure, take care, beware that you don't give in to hardness of heart. Not only individually, but corporately. In tactic number 3, encourage the church. Verse 13. We are to come alongside one another, live in close fellowship with each other, and encourage each other in the upbuilding of the faith. And then lastly, we saw in verse 14, tactic number four, cling to faith. We were called in that verse, if you'll remember, to hold fast our assurance. And that assurance was not an emotional feeling, but it was the objective truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to that confession you have, the the truth of the gospel that you believed at the beginning of your faith. Hold fast to that truth through whatever circumstance may come. As we've already seen in Psalm 95, the author is holding out for us the wilderness generation. That generation led out of Egypt that, that died in the wilderness... He's holding them out for us as an example, as an object lesson that we dare not miss. And in context, he's seriously concerned that some of the believers that are receiving this letter are going to take their eyes off of Christ and be led astray. And so over and over again, he points us back to Christ, back to Christ. Look here, look to Christ. And he's going to do that again this morning. By diving into Psalm 95 and calling us to take yet another look at the wilderness generation. Now you may have been here several weeks ago when we studied verses 7 to 11. And we looked at this generation then. But the author now calls us back. He calls us back again to examine this this people and their mistakes. And from that he's going to give us one resounding truth that we must take to heart. Now next week he's going to begin applying our verses today to us individually. But this week, primarily, our focus is going to be on the wilderness generation. And and it's important that we are are careful not to rush through these verses. The temptation is to to jump to chapter 4 and and get to the good stuff, as it were, to, to apply it immediately to ourselves. But Understand that until we have a deep understanding of the illustration, of the object lesson of the people in the wilderness generation, we won't fully feel the impact of the application that comes at the end of this text and especially in chapter 4. And so we're going to keep our eyes primarily on the wilderness generation, understanding deeply who they were and what they did and what that means, and then we'll apply that to ourselves, especially beginning next week. But let's read our text again for this morning, Hebrews 3, verses 16 to 19 specifically. The author writes, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, the structure of these verses is based around five questions. You probably picked up on that, the repetition of question after question. Five questions that all build momentum towards one conclusion, one statement that really is the point. But we've got to look at these questions as they come. In fact, these five questions really take the form of a Q&A, or three Q&As, three questions with three answers. 
Now, that's a bit confusing because he answers his questions with a question. But when you read the, the answers, even though they're in the form of a question, it becomes clear that what he's doing is asking a question, answering his question, asking, answering, asking, answering. And then he gives one powerful truth based on that Q&A. So we're going to take it in that format, three Q&As, if you will. Q&A number one tells us this important aspect of his relationship with the wilderness generation. Q&A number one, God's word spurned. God's word spurned. Look back at verse 16. For who provoked him when they had heard? That's the first question. Now the word for reminds us that we're still very much in the flow of everything that we've studied. He's not changed gears. In fact, this all comes out of the quote from Psalm 95 that we ended the message with last time. It says, today if you hear his voice, verse 15, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. That last line, when they provoked me, is what sort of throws him into this argument. So it's, it's flowing right out of what we saw last time. And here's the question. For who provoked him when they had heard? Now, again, this is right out of Psalm 95. And what he emphasizes is that there was a specific group of people at a specific time in human history that heard the voice of God. And their response to that in some way provoked God, provoked him. Now, that word provoked there is the idea that it stoked God's righteous indignation. It stoked God's wrath. Understand that we're not to think of, of God as, as if it's within his character to simply wink at sin or to simply overlook when his word is disobeyed or disregarded. No, it provokes him. It stirs up the anger of God. And that's the insinuation here. For who provoked him? Who stirred him to anger when they heard? That's the question. Here's the answer. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Again, it's in the form of a question, but obviously it's a statement. He answers his question. Who was it that provoked him when they heard? It was the people, the wilderness generation, led out of Egypt by Moses. What's interesting is that there's going to be this series of three different Q&As, and yet every single one of them ask the same question and have the same answer. Here's the real question. The question that he asked three different times is this. What group of people does Psalm 95 refer to? That's really the question. And here's the answer. The wilderness generation. That's the group of people. And yet, though the heart of each question is the same, by asking it slightly in slightly different ways and answering it in slightly different ways, he highlights for us a couple of very important truths. Number one, he's going to explain through these Q&As the, the true reason for God's judgment of the wilderness generation. We're going to find out why judgment actually fell upon them. And secondly, he's going to show us the beauty and majesty of the character of God. The beauty and majesty of the character of God. So we're going to be looking out for those two things. The true answer as to why the people were judged in the wilderness and the beauty of the character of God on display. Now notice in this first Q&A, there are two important facts that the author brings out about the wilderness generation that's going to be very helpful for us as we try to understand his argument. Here's the first fact. They heard God's word. This group of people clearly, undeniably, heard the word of God. Now, the question is, when? When did this wilderness generation hear the word of God? And the answer to that is multiple times. I'm just going to highlight sort of the two key moments in the, their lifetime in which they heard the word of God clearly. The first happened all the way back in Exodus chapter 4 when the people were still in slavery in Egypt. While they're enslaved, God calls Moses into ministry and brings Aaron alongside and sends them to the people to tell them of God's plan to, to call them out of Egypt. Exodus 4, verses 29 to 31. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. Those were the signs that God had given him to prove that God had sent him. 
So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. This was the first time that that wilderness generation heard the word of God through the mouth of, of, of Aaron and Moses. Notice, by the way, the people did not receive a direct revelation from God. The revelation of God came to the prophet who was affirmed by God, and the prophet spoke the word of God to the people. And they were held accountable to that message as if they had heard the very voice of God. That's exactly what we have, by the way, in the scriptures. We have the inspired word of God. We're not called to hear the the voice of God verbally. We're called to submit to the voice of God as it's contained in the scriptures as God spoke it to his affirmed messengers. That's exactly what's happening here. But there's a second, even more dramatic moment when the people of Israel hear the voice of God. And this is sort of the pinnacle moment. Exodus 19. We've read this before, but it bears reading again. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 7. This is after they've been brought out of Egypt. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Notice the response of the people. Verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now, Here's this majestic, wonderful scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament. As the people stand there, assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai, the, the, the mountain is shaking, it's, it's smoking, there's, there's blasts of trumpets coming from the mountain, though no one is up there, no human being is up there, and God calls Moses and Moses alone to come up on the mountain. He gives him the law of God, and Moses then recounts that law to the people, and they are then held accountable to that covenant and to that law. And notice again here, the people confess, we will obey it. You will be our God, and we will be your people. They verbally profess faith in Yahweh, and they verbally profess obedience to his covenant. Now, they heard the word of God. That's what he means here when he says in verse 16, Hebrews 3, for who provoked him when they had heard. But that's not the only fact. There's another description here in this same verse in Hebrews. The second fact about this group that's important to keep in mind is that they were led out of Egypt by Moses. They were led out of Egypt by Moses. Now that's a reference that's intended to bring all of our minds back to the miracles that God did to bring this people out of Egypt. You remember Exodus 7 to 11, God delivers the people through these these 10 plagues, miraculous plagues. The, the, The plagues were so miraculous that even the Egyptians have to admit, this is the finger of God. There's no other explanation than the fact that God is doing this to us. Then following that, there are many more miracles. You remember that God led the people by cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. You remember that in Exodus chapter 14, they come to the Red Sea. They can't cross, and the Egyptians come behind them. And so God parts the sea. The people walk through. But when the Egyptians come, the waters crush them uh, to death. There were all of these miracles after miracles after miracles, which led again to another verbal confession by the people. Exodus 14, verses 30 to 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, these two things together, these quick reminders that the people heard the word of God and were the ones that were led out of Egypt, are supposed to jog our memories to to say, wait a minute, these people were the most Blessed people. This generation saw the hand of God in a way that no other generation, except for those who witnessed the ministry of Christ, had ever seen. And yet, what's the one description of God towards this group of people in verse 16? He was provoked. He was provoked by them. Now, the Greek word, as I said, for provoked means to incite to anger. He was stirred up. His wrath was stirred up against this people. This is a reference to his holiness, to his his justice, that God will never allow sin to go unpunished. It stirs him up. Now, this should strike us, this dichotomy of the glories of what we just read, of of how they heard the word of God and they saw the hand of God, and yet the response of God to this people is that he was provoked. That that should wake you up in the same way that when you jump into a pool of water that you expect to be much warmer than it actually is and (gasps) takes your breath away and it focuses your attention in that moment. This should grab a hold of you and say, wait a minute, this people heard the word of God, they, they saw the hand of God in ways that no one else had seen at that time, and yet whatever response they had provoked the righteous wrath of God. What happened? What happened to this blessed people? That brings us to the second Q&A. Q&A number two, God's anger roused. God's anger roused. Look back at the text, verse 17. Here's the the second question. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Again, this is a reference back to Psalm 95. This is quoted earlier in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. But, but lest we think that God's anger is, is quickly provoked, that he's quick to anger, notice 40 years. For 40 years, God was stirred up by these people. God is slow to anger. The truth is, every single time, and I mean every single time, that God tested the confession of these people by bringing trials into their lives, they turned their back on him. I mean, every time. Just read Exodus and Numbers again. From the moment Aaron and Moses spoke the word of God to that generation in Egypt, to the point of their death in the wilderness, there is one cyclical pattern. I'm going to show it to you. This is is exactly what happens every single time. Four things. First of all, God would speak to the people and prove both his ability and commitment to protect and provide for them. Secondly, the people would verbally confess their faith and allegiance to Yahweh. Thirdly, God would bring a test into their circumstance to validate their confession, to test it. And fourthly, the people would respond to that test with anger and disobedience. And that happens over and over and over again. It's cyclical. It goes on for over 40 years. But in the history of the wilderness generation, there is one pinnacle moment of rebellion that stands behind the context of Psalm 95. There's one moment that is in the mind of the author of both Hebrews and Psalm 95. Now, I mentioned this in our first lesson that we we did on this passage in verses 7 through 11, but it's important for us to go back and remember that, that from the moment God sent Moses and Aaron to the people, He had promised to them two things, not only to bring them out of Egypt, but into the promised land. 
Bringing them out of Egypt was just the first step to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bring them into the promised land. And yet the people are miraculously, no doubt, brought out of Egypt. They're brought across the wilderness. They're given the law. They confess, yes, we will do it. They're brought to the, 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 the entrance into the promised land. And they decide to send out, you remember, spies into the land to just test it out and see if the land is, is good and what the people are like. And you'll remember that all but two of those spies return from that quest and they say, we can't do it. Not going to happen. Those people are big. They're scary. It, it, they're going to eat us up. It's not going to happen. Only Joshua and Caleb say, no, we can trust the Lord. The Lord is with us. All the rest of them say, no, we should not do this. Our children are going to become food for these wicked, huge people on the other side of the promised land. And they turn the hearts of the people away from trust in Yahweh. Listen to, in Numbers 14, how the people respond when they're given this, this wicked report of the promised land. This is the moment of rebellion that stands behind the context of Psalm 95. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plundered. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is the response of the people. God, after all that he's done to miraculously bring them to the entry point of the promised land, they, their faith fails and they say, nope, we'd be better off just to go back to Egypt. I want you to notice the progression of their rebellion. It begins in verse 2 with grumbling, a settled discontentment. That progresses then to questioning God out of that discontentment. And then that questioning culminates in a sinful plan of rebellion. I want you to be aware of that pattern, church. That's the same pattern that can lead our hearts towards disobedience and sin. It begins with grumbling over our circumstances. That leads to questioning God about why he's allowed our circumstances. That then leads to formulating a plan of disobedience against him and his word. We see it over and over again. That brings us to the answer to this second question in this second Q&A. Look back at verse 17. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? What's the answer? Was it not with those who sinned, the, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now that last line, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, clues us in that he's thinking about this instance in Numbers 14, that, that this is the context. Because it was this wilderness generation that when they sinned in this way here, when they refused to enter the promised land, received the judgment of God, specifically that they would not enter the promised land, but instead their bodies would fall dead in the wilderness. This is Numbers 14, 26 to 30. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephthah and Joshua the son of Nun. The author's description in Hebrews here is a clear reference to this judgment given out in Numbers 14. In fact, the Greek word here in Hebrews that's translated as bodies is actually a harsher word. It probably is better translated as corpses because that's the same word as it is here in the Septuagint. In verse 29, that your corpses would fall in the wilderness. It was this group of people, the wilderness generation, with whom God was angry for 40 years. And the result of that is that they would not enter the promised land. Instead, they would fall dead in the wilderness. But I want you just to take a pause for a moment and not miss something very important. 
Because while the emphasis here obviously is on the anger and wrath of God towards this group of people, I don't want you to miss the fact that we also see the extreme mercy and goodness of God at the exact same time. Understand that this reference to this 40 years of provoking God refers to 40 years that came after this moment in Numbers 14. It was 40 years that would continue. Understand what that means. It means that these people would be cared for by God for 40 years after this moment of rebellion. When God would have been just to simply just strike them down and just start over. In fact, God even says that to Moses. This is Numbers 14, 11 to 12. It says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. This is God's initial response to Moses after the people rebel. But understand, this is, this is not an example of, of God having a, an overreaction where he needs Moses to come alongside and calm him down. Okay? This is an intentional response by God. He's trying to remind Moses of something and remind us of something. What he says is, you know what? I would be just to just mow them down and start over with you, Moses. But what he does in saying that is he provokes Moses to remember who God is, who God has declared himself to be. And Moses calls out to God and begins to pray to God for God to be who he says he is. This is Numbers 14, 17 to 19. Moses is praying. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Moses quotes back to God what God declared to Moses about himself in Exodus. You remember when he, he shows himself to Moses, this is God's own declaration. And so in, in threatening to just mow them down, God is provoking within Moses this remembrance of the true character of God, and he calls upon him to, to pardon these people. And God responds, Numbers 14, verse 20, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. What he's saying is, I've pardoned them. I'm not going to just immediately wipe them out and start over. But I will be honored. And so the punishment stands. Forty years they will live and they will die in this wilderness. And they will not enter into the promised land. But I want you to think about this. In committing himself to this judgment, God was also committing himself to 40 more years of miraculous provision for this people. Because remember, how did they eat in the wilderness? How did they find water in the wilderness? For 40 years, and by the way, the people don't change. It's not like they humble themselves and suddenly become soft towards Yahweh. They remain stiff-necked and hard-hearted to the very end, and yet every morning they wake up to manna on the ground that God has miraculously provided for them. Over and over again, he provides for them. This is the goodness of our God, even though he's bringing justice upon them. But I want to encourage us as we think about the goodness of God in these moments not to forget that God hates sin. He hates sin and he will punish hard-hearted rebellion. And he proves it to us in the third Q&A. Q&A number three, God's rest removed. God's rest removed. In this case, the author changes his pattern slightly. Instead of giving two different questions. He wraps them into one, but it still has the same effect of a Q&A. Look back at verse 18. This is the third question. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? 
This again is a quote from Psalm 95 or a reference to Psalm 95. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so with this quote, the author of Hebrews is actually introducing for us the subject that will become the primary subject starting next week. And that's this idea of God's rest. And and as we will see in coming weeks, there are two applications of this idea, this concept of God's rest. One of them clearly references the entrance into the physical promised land. For the people of the, the wilderness generation, they were excluded from the promised land, cut off from the rest that God had promised them in that land that flowed with milk and honey. But we're also going to see that there's another application of this, a spiritual application of God's rest that refers to salvation. We'll get to that next week. But here, clearly, when he says, I swore that they would not enter my rest, he's referring to Numbers 14 and the fact that they would die in the wilderness and would not enter into the promised land. And just in case the people were tempted to think that God was going to change his mind, he adds here, I swore. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? That is, by his own name. He swore this will not happen. They will not enter my rest. And so while it's true that God's grace was shown through his continued provision for this people, make no mistake about it, his holiness and wrath were equally on display. Understand that 40 years would not have been enough time under normal circumstances for all of those people to pass away. Remember that this applied to everyone 20 years of age and older. And so you think about it, even in this time period, those particularly who were on the younger end of that spectrum, many of them should have lived another 40 years and been alive to enter into the promised land. And so what this means is that this promise of God is that they would die, many of them not by natural causes, but under the hand of God's judgment. And of course, as you read the rest of Numbers, that's exactly what happens. Some of them die by being bitten by poisonous snakes sent as judgment from God. Others die from disease and pestilence sent by God. And a whole group of particularly rebellious people die because they're swallowed by the ground as it opens its mouth and swallows them. So clearly they didn't die by natural causes, many of them. And yet every single one of them dropped dead in that wilderness except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Both the survival of those two and the death of the rest were proof of God's faithfulness and of his judgment over sin. And so what's the answer to the question here? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? To those who were disobedient. Again, a clear reference to this generation. But having said all of that, now we have to step back and just ask ourselves, what's the point? What's the point of all this? After all, I hope you've enjoyed the historical facts. I hope you've enjoyed seeing the the hand of God and the, the majesty of God. But what is the author of Hebrews really getting at? Why is he taking us on this journey of three questions and and three answers? And the answer to that is there is one crucial lesson that he wants to highlight for us, that that he's drawing out of these three Q&As. And here is the crucial lesson that you can't miss. If you've fallen asleep through all of this, wake up and hear this. Here is the lesson. Unbelief produces disobedience. Unbelief produces disobedience. Look at the final statement in verse 19. Notice the change here in the verb, so we see. He's turned his attention away from the wilderness generation to us, reading the letter, and he says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They weren't able to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now, that statement should be striking and maybe even a little bit confusing. Because as you think back to everything we've just studied in these verses preceding verse 19, the emphasis has been on the actions of these people. 
In fact, if, if I, we had just put a fill in the blank there and left the word unbelief out, and I'd said, hey, fill in the blank, so we see they weren't able to enter because of, you likely would have put disobedience. Because after all, he just said that the, these are those who were disobedient. But that's not what he says. He says they weren't able to enter because of unbelief. Instead, just like a person who lies reveals that they are a liar and a person who steals reveals that they are a thief, these Israelites, by their constant disobedience, have revealed a much more serious problem than just outward disobedience. They've revealed the fact that underneath the surface of that disobedience is lurking the real culprit that's led to their judgment, and it is their unbelief. This reveals an important doctrinal truth that we can't afford to miss this morning. Disobedience to God's word is the result of unbelief. Though the Israelites had made multiple verbal confessions of faith in Yahweh and commitment to Yahweh, their lives revealed that their confessions were nothing but hot air. And God is not interested in a faith that goes no deeper than your words. He's not impressed by lavish, eloquent words of faith if they don't flow from a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. A heart that truly is softened towards God, that has bowed the knee in submission to God, and has true faith in God. Don't misunderstand, this is not a doctrine of salvation by works. It wasn't then for them, and it's not now for us. Instead, it's the crucial truth that a genuine confession of faith comes from the overflow of the heart and not just from the overflow of the tongue, from a heart that's been transformed. And a genuine faith that's taken root in the heart stands firm in the face of difficult circumstances. It lasts through the storm. The Israelites were tested by God with the intention of of God proving their faith, and every single time they failed that test. And so the evaluation of the author of Hebrews here is that clearly then their faith was counterfeit. It wasn't a real faith. And so it is that it was their unbelief that resulted in their corpses falling in the wilderness, having never had the privilege of entering the promised land. Now next week, the author's going to immediately turn the tables on us and begin applying these things to us. But the truth is, there's no guarantee that you or I will make it to next week. And so we have to see one thing before we leave this text. Because we live in an area of the United States known as the Bible Belt. Some of you are new here. You've come predominantly from the West. Welcome to the western end of the Bible Belt. In the Bible Belt, traditionally, culturally, it's seen as a good idea to be a Christian or to identify as a Christian and to go to church and to do church-like things. And the result of that in some ways has been positive, but in many, many ways it's been extremely detrimental. Because it's now been popular for decades for pastors to simply push for a verbal confession of faith. Just come down the aisle. In fact, I'll just lead you through the prayer. Just repeat after me. Say what I say. Sign a card. We'll dunk you in some water and you go on your way. That's become the cultural idea of what it is to be a Christian in the Bible Belt. But far too often what's happened in those moments is nothing more than an emotional, verbal affirmation of some facts. And this is why so many church-going people, as they're known, live lives of open rebellion and disobedience to the Word of God while maintaining an unwavering confidence in the assurance of their salvation. And if that's you here this morning then hear the words of the author of Hebrews. If you've made a verbal profession of faith in the gospel, but since that day have continued to live in unbroken rebellion against God, understand that your faith is counterfeit. God does not accept a dead faith, as James calls it. He doesn't accept a faith that's had no effect on the life of that person. 
genuine faith doesn't first come from the tongue. It comes from the heart. And a verbal confession of faith in Christ will come, but it will come as the overflow of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've bought into the cultural lie that being a Christian is simply verbally affirming some facts and doing some Christian-like things, then hear this. The true gospel is this. You first have to see yourself as God sees you. And God doesn't see you as a person who has done a lot of good things but committed a few sins along the way. The Bible says God sees you as a sinner through and through. That we are not those who just have committed sins, but we are in fact sinners. And that sin separates us from a holy God. It makes us deserving of the wrath of God for our sin. But you also have to understand that just as God is, was full of justice and holiness and wrath to this wilderness generation, while at the same time being gracious and good and faithful, he has been abundantly good and gracious to us and has provided for us his son, his only son, his perfect son, who lived a perfect life and offered that life willingly on a cross to pay for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserved upon himself. And the Bible says he rose again from the grave on the third day. And that what is needed for salvation is, is not to try to do better or, or try to, to stop this and, and start that, but to put your eyes on that Jesus Christ and to humble yourself in repentance and faith in him, that you have no hope except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourself and call out to him for forgiveness. That is the gospel. And the Bible says, for all who will repent of their sins, and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they will be saved. They will be pardoned for their sins, their sins washed away, made new. And that will result then in a transformed life. Not a perfect life, but a new life of faith in the Jesus Christ in which we hate sin and seek to put it off and put on righteousness. The Israelites in the wilderness generation missed it. They had confidence in their verbal affirmations and denied that affirmation by their life. If that's been you this morning, the good news is there's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ if you would only turn to him in faith. So if you're a believer this morning, I don't want to leave you without anything to think on this week as well. And there are two primary applications I would turn our attention to as we prepare our hearts for next week when things get really personal from this text. But number one, I would invite you to consider the faithlessness of the wilderness generation. Consider the faithlessness of the wilderness generation. As I mentioned earlier, all of this is contained in Numbers 14, and I would challenge you this week to take your Bible and start reading in Numbers 14 and just read through the rest of Numbers and just look at how this people continued to respond sinfully to God. And I want you to notice something in particular. I want you to see how quickly the people question God when he allows even the, the slightest change that's uncomfortable in their circumstances. Just every time he tweaks their circumstances so that they become slightly uncomfortable, they immediately rebel. And I also want you to consider then the twin truth that we've heard here in Hebrews that that disobedience and rebellion ultimately stemmed from a lack of faith. And I want you to consider this. Every time you grumble or question God because you don't like your circumstances, it's an evidence that your faith is still too weak. Even as believers who have come to true faith and salvation, our faith is to be continually strengthened so that we trust God more and more in our circumstances. What it means then is not that you've lost your salvation, but it means that your view of God is still far too small. God is far bigger than we could ever imagine. Even in a church like this one where one of our, our distinctives is a high view of God. Let me tell you, our view of God is still too low. However high your view of God is, it's got to go higher. And then when you get it higher, you've got to go higher than that. Because our finite brains cannot grasp how high and big and good and sovereign our God is. And so exalt your thoughts of him, Christian. 
And understand that when you lack faith, when you have a weak faith in the midst of your circumstances, it says something about your view of God. Exalt your view of God in those circumstances. Turn your eyes to Christ and you'll find that your heart is then settled. Not because he's changed your circumstance, but because you've begun to see more clearly who he is. Secondly, consider the faithfulness of the eternal God. As you consider the faithlessness of that generation, consider also the faithfulness of the eternal God. And I want you to remember that though God is just, he is holy, he hates sin. And we can't shortchange that or sugarcoat that. He's always also unceasingly faithful and kind and merciful and good. In light of that, Christian, if, if Yahweh faithfully provided for this stiff-necked, rebellious people every day, morning and evening for 40 years, how much more will that same God care for you, Christian, who are bought by the blood of his own son? He will not abandon you. His goodness will never shift or change. He will be gracious to forgive you when you sin, gracious to strengthen you in the face of every trial and temptation, Gracious to embolden you to proclaim his precious gospel. Gracious to hold you fast, firm until the end. Set your eyes on the faithfulness of our God. And remember, there is no circumstance that is too big for our good and gracious God. He will hold us fast. Do you believe that? Church, do you believe that? Then let's live that. Let's live that way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the truths that were brought to bear in our hearts and minds through this wonderful text in Hebrews. We are convicted by the faithlessness of this wilderness generation because at times we see that weak faith in ourselves. But we're also encouraged by the faithfulness of our sovereign God who never wavered in his goodness for a moment towards them. And we have confidence that in Christ, he will never waver in his goodness and grace towards us. Though we are fickle, though even as believers, our lives have been transformed, they've been made new, yet we still sin and we find you gracious and kind and good. So we thank you for this continued goodness towards us. May we live in light of it, propelled by your love and grace in your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.